Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of Minds Over Money. I'm your host, Cameron Brady, and on this week's episode, I'm covering three headlines from last week that directly impact the economy, as well as having potential implications on your own investment portfolios. And those headlines are workers changing attitudes tighten the labor market, how the Fed's rate increase will hit Americans' monthly budgets, and how central banks may stoke risk by raising interest rates together. In addition to those headlines, I'm also covering another financial planning topic. And this week, it's how retirement income guardrails can provide peace of mind. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy. This week's first headline is workers changing attitudes tighten the labor market. The pandemic has altered what job conditions, hours, and pay workers are willing to accept. The phrase labor market doesn't do justice to the complex relationship between workers and their jobs. Unlike ordinary goods and services, such as slabs of steel or cups of coffee, workers care about how they're treated and have other things to do with their time. This has become glaringly apparent from recent events. Last week, railroad workers nearly went on strike over working conditions, such as how much time they could take off for medical needs without penalty. In Minnesota, nurses walked off the job for more pay and the right to refuse what they consider unsafe situations. In Pennsylvania, striking nursing home workers got a pay raise and limits on how many residents a staffer must care for. All this suggests workers' attitudes and leverage have shifted in important ways in recent years. The effect is to make labor scarcer and more expensive than ordinary economic indicators show. Of course, attitudes towards work have steadily evolved over the past century, reflecting changing social attitudes such as toward child labor, whether mothers should stay at home, and whether employers should offer overtime pay, health care, and other benefits. Sometimes, though, a single event catalyzes change. World War II spurred a big boost to women's labor force participation. President Ronald Reagan's firing of striking air traffic controllers in 1981 dealt a lasting blow to unions' bargaining power. The COVID-19 pandemic might similarly have catalyzed a reappraisal of what workers are willing to do for how many hours and at what wage. While this mostly consists of anecdotal evidence of a quote-unquote great resignation or quote-unquote quiet quitting, some empirical evidence points in the same direction. The unemployment rate at 3.7% is similar to levels of 2019, but far more jobs are vacant. The share of working age population either working or looking for work, the participation rate, dropped sharply with the pandemic and has not fully recovered, especially for those over age 54. And that may understate the decline in the supply of labor. Since 2013, surveys by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York have asked how many hours respondents preferred to work. In the wake of the pandemic, the number plunged for men, women, the old, the young, the middle-aged, the full-time workers, part-time workers, and people out of the labor force, according to a study out of the University of Texas at Austin. The study reckons that by the end of 2021, based not just on how many people were available, but how many hours they preferred to work, there were far fewer potential hours available to employers than before the pandemic. So people are wanting to work less. Several things can erode willingness to work. 
First, the alternatives can become more appealing, such as time with family or leisure activities. Working from home may have proved so pleasant that some workers would sooner quit than return to the office. Fattened stock portfolios and government payouts may have eased this decision for some, others may simply value money less. Second, work itself may have become more unpleasant. COVID-19 has made in-person work riskier, while vacancies and absenteeism have raised the burden on those who show up. This was a central issue for railroad workers, who are increasingly called in to cover for colleagues who are sick or just don't show up, eating into leisure and family time, then still have to work their regular shift or suffer a penalty. They didn't resolve this complaint in their latest contract, but did win paid time off for medical care. Sometimes the effect of working conditions on the labor market is obvious. Long before COVID, workers at nursing homes felt overworked and underpaid. The pandemic with heightened demands and health risks exacerbated the staffing crisis. For instance, 30% of the industry's workforce nationwide exited during the COVID pandemic. That collapse in the supply of qualified workers effectively signaled that people were no longer willing to tolerate the same conditions for the same pay. How long will workers' new attitude towards work and the bargaining power it brings last? It might already be changing. Surveys show workers' desired hours have recovered this year. In August, labor force participation also ticked higher, and in early September, the share of workers in the office climbed to a recent high of 47.5% of pre-pandemic levels. And that's before the Federal Reserve's campaign to cool the economy with higher interest rates has raised unemployment. Much of the change in willingness to work is driven by historically high worker bargaining power, driven by high demand, a global pandemic, and huge labor shortages. An unemployment rate of higher than 6% could reverse these views on work pretty quickly. Workers have far more bargaining power than in previous years due to the tightness of the labor market and the abundance of jobs. That bargaining power may be starting to melt away as the unemployment rate begins to inch higher and the Federal Reserve increases the pressure on cooling the economy and reducing wage growth. This week's second headline is how the Fed's rate increase will hit Americans' monthly budgets. The slow burn of rising interest rates raises the cost of car loans, mortgages, and credit cards. The Federal Reserve raised rates another three-quarters of a percentage point last Wednesday as part of its continuing effort to stamp out stubbornly high inflation. Americans are only beginning to feel the full impact of these moves. By raising rates, the Fed seeks to cool the economy and rein in inflation, which continued to run higher than expected in August. Higher interest rates raise the cost of carrying credit card balances and taking out mortgages, car loans, and other debt, but consumers may not immediately feel the effects. Even outsized increases like the central bank's recent hikes reach wallets and the broader economy somewhat gradually over weeks and months. To put the rate increases in context, it helps to look at the actual effect higher rates are having on Americans' monthly expenses for credit cards and other debt since the Fed began its effort six months ago. Rising rates will increase your credit card bills. The average annual percentage rate on a credit card increased from around 16.17% in early March to more than 18% in September 
because of rate increases. Since the average household carries an $8,942 balance, that works out to roughly an extra $14 in interest each month. Higher mortgage rates make homes less affordable. The change in the cost of borrowing to buy a house has been more pronounced in what has already been a pricey housing market. Before the Fed's move, the average fixed rate on a 30-year mortgage recently rose to 6.02% from 4.16% the week of March 17th, and additional rate increases will likely push mortgage rates even higher. Rising rates can translate to hundreds of dollars more in a monthly mortgage payment. The median home price reached over $403,000 in July, so someone putting a 20% down payment on such a home and taking out a 30-year mortgage with a 6% rate will now pay around $2,400 a month. If they made the same purchase six months ago, their monthly payments would be nearly $250 less. A new car comes with additional sticker shock. Americans are also paying more than ever before to finance new cars. Those looking to buy a new car now should closely examine the interest rate offered. Individual dealerships and lenders can charge different amounts for a new loan, but the average APR on a five-year loan steadily increased over the past six months from 3.98% to 5.07%. As the average price of a new car rises closer to $50,000, borrowers every month are paying about $25 more. Savings accounts generate slightly more interest. In years past, one benefit of higher rates has been better interest on savings accounts, but the rates on savings tend to rise much more slowly than those for loans since the banks don't have much competition for deposits. Still, an increase in rates can mean a slightly better yield on your savings. Six months ago, most high-yield savings accounts were paying just half a percent interest. Now you can get 2% at most online banks. Budget trade-offs to consider. The frequency and the size of the Fed increases make it tougher for consumers to make decisions about borrowing and saving. The big picture could mean streamlining your financial plan or reimagining money goals in light of the combined effects on these rate increases. As life gets more expensive from inflation and higher interest rates, it may mean consumers have to make tough decisions with their spending as well as their savings. As the homes become more expensive through higher interest rates, do house hunters put off their search or settle for smaller, less expensive house? Do car shoppers opt for a cheaper ride or stick with their old car until rates decrease? Do consumers pull back on their credit card spending because their rates are increasing? The hope of the Federal Reserve is that the increased interest rates make consumers think twice before purchasing big-ticket items to help cool the economy. Make sure to account for these higher costs as you amend or create a new budget when considering a large purchase. This week's third headline is Central Banks May Stoke Risks by Raising Interest Rates Together. Central banks around the world are raising their key interest rates in the most widespread tightening of monetary policy on record. Some economists fear they may go too far if they don't take into account their collective impact on global demand. According to the World Bank, the number of rate increases announced by central banks around the world was the highest in July since records began in the early 1970s. Last Wednesday, the Federal Reserve delivered its third three-quarters percentage point increase in as many meetings. 
this past week, its counterparts in Indonesia, Norway, the Philippines, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, Taiwan, and the UK also upped rates. Moreover, the size of those rate rises is larger than usual. On September 20th, Sweden's risk bank increased its reference rate by a full percentage point. It hadn't previously raised or lowered rates by more than half a percentage point since adopting its current framework in July of 2002. Those central banks are almost universally responding to high inflation. Inflation across the group of 20 leading economies was 9.2% in July, double the rate of a year earlier. Higher rates cool demand for goods and services and reassure households and businesses that inflation will be brought down over the coming year. But some worry that central banks are effectively pursuing national responses to what is a global problem of excess demand and high prices. They warn that central banks as a group will thus go too far and push the world economy into a downturn that is deeper than necessary. There are few signs that central banks are going to pause and take stock of the impact of their rate increases to date. The Fed indicated last Wednesday it would likely raise rates one percentage point to one and a quarter percentage points over the next two meetings. Economists at JP Morgan expect central bankers from Canada, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru, the Eurozone, Hungary, Israel, Poland, Romania, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, India, Malaysia, and Thailand to raise rates in policy meetings scheduled through the end of October. That is an array of central bank firepower with few precedents. But do they all need to be doing so much if they are all doing the same thing? Most economists accept that inflation in any one country isn't solely due to forces within that country. Global demand also affects the prices of easily traded goods and services. This has long been apparent with commodities such as oil. A boom in China drove up prices in 2008, even as the U.S. slid into a recession. It has also been true in recent years of manufactured goods, whose prices were boosted worldwide by disruptions to supply chains such as at Asian ports and elevated demand from government stimulus. One Fed study found that U.S. fiscal stimulus raised inflation in Canada and the U.K., but an individual central bank's focusing on matching supply and demand at a national level could go too far, because other central banks are already weakening the global demand that is one of the drivers of national inflation. If each central bank does so, the excess tightening globally may be significant. The risk could be reduced through coordination between central banks. For example, when they cut key interest rates together during the global financial crisis. Likewise, in 1985, when advanced economies acted together to bring down the dollar, and then again in 1987, when they acted together to support it. Fed Chair Jerome Powell noted last Wednesday that central banks have coordinated interest rate actions in the past, but that it wasn't appropriate now when we're in very different situations. He added that contact among global central banks is more or less ongoing, and it's not coordination but there's a lot of information sharing. If coordination isn't feasible, a more attainable goal may be, as the World Bank advised, for national policymakers to take into account the potential spillovers of globally synchronous domestic policies. Mr. Powell suggested that already happens. 
The Fed's forecasts always take account of policy decisions, monetary policy, and otherwise, and the economic developments that are taking place in major economies that can have an effect on the U.S. economy. As I have mentioned on previous episodes, the goal of a soft landing for the Fed is an extremely difficult task. In the previous 14 rising interest rate environments the U.S. economy has faced since World War II, the Fed has achieved a soft landing in just three of them. Add in the fact that many other central banks around the world are moving forward with tightening their monetary policy, which will have effects outside their borders, makes the Fed's task that much more difficult. With the likelihood of a recession rising as inflation expectations remain elevated and interest rates continue their march upward, my advice for you hasn't changed. Remain disciplined with your investment plan, asset allocation, and rebalancing strategy. Look to put any extra cash to work while stock valuations are temporarily down, and review your cash flow needs relative to your portfolio balance if you are in the distribution phase of life. This week's financial planning topic is how retirement income guardrails can provide you peace of mind. One of the most difficult components of a retirement plan is understanding the what-if scenarios when it comes to your cash flow. Let's set the stage. You and your spouse have amassed a sizable nest egg to help fund your retirement years. You have taken a deep dive into your monthly expenses and know how much you need per month to meet your bills. Looking at your long-term retirement projection, 30 plus years, your nest egg is more than adequate to fund your lifestyle, plus some. That's fantastic news. You can now ride off into the sunset live your best retirement life, and never have to worry about your cash flows again. Unfortunately, this is only true in hypothetical retirement projections and not in the real world where market returns aren't level, tax laws change, and unexpected expenses always pop up. Life is unpredictable, and that truth doesn't change when you enter retirement. Your portfolio will move up and down with the stock market. It's the only way to ensure that your nest egg grows with the ever-increasing cost of living. If you need proof, just look at the current inflation numbers. Average expenses are up $450 a month. That's $5,400 a year. And if that stayed level for your entire retirement, which it won't, that would be an additional $162,000 over 30 years of retirement. And don't forget, inflation compounds and is not linear like this example. So if your nest egg must be exposed to negative market pressures as a consequence of needing the positive market growth to meet living expenses over a 30 plus year time frame, what is your plan for when we enter a period of economic contraction and negative market performance? This is where having retirement income guardrails in place can help you understand when it might be beneficial to pull back on your cash flow draw from your portfolio and when you have the option to increase your income and take advantage of a better-than-expected growth year. Our guardrails work off your individualized risk tolerance and risk number pertaining to how your nest egg is invested. Through our conversation about your risk tolerance, we determine a range of market returns that are acceptable to you. This means both positive and negative returns. We set the lower guardrail at your acceptable negative market movement range. This is the lowest your portfolio can go in your mind before you start to lose sleep over it and think about adjusting your cash flow. Should your portfolio fall below this level, that is a trigger for us to reevaluate the cash flow draw on your portfolio and potentially reduce cash flows 
temporarily to help preserve the integrity of your nest egg. The upper guardrail is set at the acceptable positive market movement range, and when your portfolio breaks through this level, you have the ability to reevaluate your cash flows up and spend more money monthly without significantly affecting the long-term integrity of your nest egg. The retirement income guardrails become an integral part of your financial plan as it becomes the system by which you can judge the health and success of your retirement lifestyle. The goal of the guardrail is not to scare you into spending less money. It is to empower you to make impactful financial decisions regarding your spending and inevitably the long-term success of your dream retirement. If you and your life savings are being ignored or feeling taken advantage of, come join our family. We are a family-owned financial planning and investment advisory firm that promises to treat you like family. No products, no hard sell, no gimmicks, just honest advice based on our four decades of experience. If you have any questions on this week's episode or are interested in getting an unbiased opinion on your finances, please give me a call at 440-235-2100 or email me at Cameron at michaelbradyco.com. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Mm-hmm.